Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Did you guys know that the very first name for uh, people who were looking towards Jesus as their Savior was not the name Christian? That actually kind of, that came later on in that, in that experience, in that story. The very first name of the followers of Jesus were people of the way. They were known to be people of the way. So people were watching how this group of people were living, and they were noticing, man, this, they are living in the same way in which Jesus lived, which is really interesting. So they were watching this community love each other, serve, uh, pour themselves out for other people, and they're like, man, this is a lot like Jesus's life. This is a lot like Jesus's way. And that was the very beginning of the church, people of the way. We're trying to live into that as our, as our little church, this, this community called The Vine. We're trying to live into this because we really want to respond to the invitation that Jesus gives us to follow him. It's really important to have right belief, to believe in, in Jesus. But man, is it so incredibly important to not only believe in him, but to live like him, to follow him, to, to love like him, to speak like him. And so for us as a community, this is what we're going to do, especially in the season of Lent. We're in this sermon series called Practicing the Way of Jesus. So for during this season, we call Lent as we go towards Easter. This is what we're doing. Each week, we're looking at different practices that we see in the life of Jesus. The first week, we talked about the practice of Sabbath, about having rhythms of rest and renewal. Last week, we talked about actually verbally sharing our faith with people. And this week, I want to, this might seem a little esoteric, but what I'd like to do is to look at two different things about what we might notice in the life of Jesus. First is something called the cruciform life. The cruciform life, which simply means a life formed by Jesus' cross. And the second thing I want to consider is the roles that desire plays in your life. There is, this, there is this power in your life. It's called desire. And I think Jesus' life teaches us how that role of desire should inform our life. We are people driven by our desires. Our desires are this silent engine that's humming beneath the surface of our life. It drives the decisions we make. It uh, determines the life we live. We all desire rest Satisfaction, community, pleasure, significance, intimacy. These are all things that we all desire with each other. The problem is, is that our desires are usually not satisfied easily. And when they are satisfied, it just happens just for a little bit. It's elusive. They leave very quickly. This creates in the human experience this real dilemma. What does it mean that we are people full of desires? but we can't quite seem to find satisfaction. A Jesuit priest and a theologian by the name of Karl Rahner, he said it like this, In the torment of the insufficiency of everything attainable, we learn that ultimately in this world, there is no finished symphony. Kind of a dark statement, right? Even in the greatest moments in our life, it's, we're still left wanting more because it's insufficient. All things are insufficient to, to fully satisfy you in your life, my life as well. And when we do find it, it ends so quickly like an unfinished symphony. It doesn't seem to resolve. It doesn't seem to stick with us. What makes this harder for us today 
is that we have this sense of restlessness in our life today. It's pushing us to long for more and more and more. Many people say that we receive 4,000 advertisements every single day. 4,000 times in your day, subtly and not so subtly, there are things that are calling for you to desire me, to come and get me, to spend your money for me. 4,000 times a day that's happens. And what's interesting is that in our day and age, they're perfectly curated for you. They're perfectly curated for you. And all of these ads are trying to stoke that fire of desire. I watched a documentary recently uh, called The Century of Self. It's on YouTube. If you want a mind melt, I recommend it. It tells the story of the rise of modern advertising. After World War II, the power brokers of New York City and D.C. got together because they had this problem. They had a, a, an economy, a, a economy that was doing well, but it was, it was really buoyed by the wars. And so we had all these people who were employed to help the war, and all these warehouses and manufacturers that were, that were churning out the, 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 the war machine. And so after World War II was ending, they realized, uh-oh, we're in for a problem. We're going to have to have thousands of factory workers in empty warehouses with nothing to do. And so they had their, a great idea, and it was to replace the economy from a needs economy to a wants economy. A famous quote from this meeting was from this man named Paul Mazur. He was from Lehman Brothers, and he says this, We must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire to want new things even before the old things have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. Before the thing you, you have is even, it's still working, it's fine. It's like an iPhone version 5, and you're like, I, but I want the new one because it has a portrait lens on it, right? Like, this is me. This is our conversation in our home. Like, I, we need this, right? We don't need it. Like, we're fine. But we have these desires, this longing. If you fast forward from that was, again, after World War II, fast forward to today, and our economy is built upon people spending money they don't quite have on things they really don't need. And many reasons why this makes it even harder is that there's this little tracking device in your pocket or your purse that knows everything you're interested in, and it pushes all those things to you saying, you need me. Someone in this church uh, told me about, I mentioned their cool shoes, and they, they said, oh, it's, it's a shoe called Allbirds. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Let me Google it. Guess what I see 20 times a day now? <laughs> Advertisements for Allbirds. And I'm going to get some, eventually. <laughs> Multi-billion dollar advertising businesses exist to make money off of your restlessness. And where this leads us is though we have time-saving devices, life hacks, and more goods and services than any generation before, we as a community are marked by anxiety, sadness, and restlessness. It seems that our desires have been on the driver's seat and has led to a bloated sense of emptiness. As we chase these desires, our souls are panting for more. So what do we do with that? 
Well, the Buddhist uh, point of view would say to detach from our desires, to learn to the sense of indifference around our desires. Modern living would say, just go after it more, chase your desires. We can find life in temporal delight. Eat, drink, be merry, right? That's not, that, that's not like the motto of Austin, right? Eat small plates, drink you know, closely crafted cocktail drinks for 15 bucks. Be merry. Like this is kind of our motto as a community. But then there's a Christian view that gives a different understanding. In this world, expect a sense of restlessness and an inability to find satisfaction because you were created for a different kind of world. Augustine's confessions, he famously said this, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. That sense of restlessness that you have is perhaps a divine thumbprint on your soul from your creator. We are restless and homesick because we are not home. Philosopher and theologian Dallas Willard, he said this, Speaking of our desires, he said this, Desire is infinite partly because we were made by God, we were made for God, made to need God, made to run on God. We can be satisfied only by the one who is infinite, eternal, and able to supply all your needs. We are only at home in God. When we fall away from God, the desire for the infinite still remains, but it is displaced upon things that will certainly lead to destruction. We were created for an infinite, eternal, loving God. And the problem is not our desires. The problem is the way in which we allow our desires to move us to places of brokenness. What we experience in our world today is displaced pursuit of satisfaction. Just one more vacation to satisfy, especially at the end of uh, spring break, right? Or maybe you're here because you didn't take a a spring break trip. Yeah, I'd like to have a vacation, thank you. Maybe one more fling on a dating app. Maybe one more achievement. One more promotion at work. And all of this, if you allow your desires to be in the driver's seat, it will lead to a life of materialism, consumerism, hedonism, comparison, and simply a life of more. But then we will be left with this disappointing taste in our mouth when we, in fact, we must learn to place our desires to God. The psalmist in Psalm 37, 4 said this, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. I used to think that this passage was trying to say, if you like really love God, then God will give you what you want. Did anyone else kind of read it that way? Like it's like if you really show God like you're checking off the box and all the, the moral things to do, then he's going to show up and he's going to deliver like Amazon, right? But in fact, it might be the opposite. Where if we have learned a life that all of our desires, our, our wants, our needs, if we have learned to actually go to God and soak in who God is, God's presence, God's promises, and really delight in God. Not only his hands, but like but who God is. Not only what he gives, but who he is. Then perhaps the desires of your heart will be satisfied as you delight 
in God. Why have I taken such a long detour talking about desires? Well, I believe that unchecked desires in the driver's seat is the common role for most of our life. It's just the common way that we are driven by our desires. And I believe that there's no greater countercultural concept for our day and age than the common call that Jesus gave us to pick up our crosses and follow him. That invitation of the cross from your Savior collides with the rampant consumerism and the innate human restlessness in this digital age. And what I hope to make clear in this time is the call to take up your cross is actually good news. It's not only good news for this world, but it's actually good news for your own soul. So let's talk about the cruciform life. The phrase cruciform is a phrase that literally means a life shaped by the cross. As we consider this Lent practicing the way of Jesus, we must know that if we're going to follow Jesus, a central concept for Jesus' life was the cross. It wasn't just like a surprise at the end of Jesus' life that, oh, there's a cross. All along the way, he talked about the cross, even before it made sense to his followers. His life was shaped by the cross. And the cross has been for the church and the followers of Jesus a powerful symbol of what it means to follow him. Just take a second right now and consider what does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? Whether you see a cross on a necklace or hung in a living room or here in worship, what does it conjure? What does it bring out? Jesus' life was oriented to a cross. In Luke 9.51, it says this, when the, dra- when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. That phrase, set his face, means like a clarity of vision. It means that he was determined. He was going to Jerusalem, and what was waiting for him in Jerusalem was his death. It was the cross. What's interesting to me is this is in Luke 9. He turns his life and his face towards the cross. This is pretty early on in his life and his ministry. There are 24 chapters in Luke, and for most of the book of Luke, from 9 to 24, he is marching to the cross. His life and his journey was towards the cross. It was oriented around it. And as he was walking towards the cross, all of life was flourishing around him. It was all flourishing around him. And in our wild pursuit to chase our desires and hopes to find and acquire more and more, the way of Jesus teaches us that that way will not work. Life is not found through accumulation, whether experiences or materials or prestige, but life is actually found, in a surprising way, in denial, in service, and in sacrifice. Jesus says this countercultural message in Matthew 16, 25, Whoever wants to save their life must lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. If you're trying to acquire life, you'll be empty-handed. But if you give of yourself, like fully give of yourself, you will find in the end your hands are full of what really, really matters. This is so countercultural because the American dream is what? It's a dream of upward mobility. It's a life of up and to the right. It's the dream 
where uh, we are, are, are marching slowly towards a life of more. And Jesus clarifies that to follow me means leaving behind the ways of this world of power and of comforts, of prestige and of, uh, and of authority in the way the world sees it. And Jesus will lead us in a surprising journey as Henry Nowen once coined. He called it the downward path of mobility. As we remember Jesus' journey downward, he used his power in generous service and his sacrificial love of others. He released what he had and who he was for the sake of many. That is a life formed by the cross. Or in other words, that is a cruciform life. If we are honest, we, we want to push the cross to Jesus. But we rarely think that the cross is actually for us. It's the invitation for Jesus in our life. For instance, when I ask you what comes to mind when you think about the cross, how many of us think about our own cross? We make the cross something that Jesus had to experience and we get to dodge. But for Jesus, the cross is always a part of following him. Look at this. Luke 9.23 and Luke 14.27. Remember Luke as he's marching his way to Jerusalem. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In other words, it's not enough to believe in the power of Jesus' cross, to worship it. We are called to carry our own cross as well. We're, we're called to have a life formed around Jesus' cross. If we want to be a follower of Jesus, this is the invitation. Now, in visiting with friends in our community and our church, I know many of us have this negative reaction to carrying our cross. I've heard it. I've had conversations with you. Or the idea of dying to self. And to be honest, it's for good reason. Oftentimes, the church has not been a place where people flourish. People are actually experiencing life to the full. Oftentimes, people in church, um, it's too common that people die on the vine, which is like an awful phrase for our church's uh, name. <laughs> but remember, remember this. True Christ-like life and service and sacrifice always leads to life. Always leads to life. Maybe it's not the life that this world uh, admires and lifts up, but it's a life to the full in, in God's kingdom. To die to self also does not mean sacrificing your personhood. doesn't mean that you're deplorable and you should like, have all of the needs taken out of your life. No, we actually live in a day and age where the church is finally lifting up self-care, which is really, really good. And I would say self-care and dying to self, a life taking up your cross, are not mutually exclusive. They're not, they don't go against each other. For instance, the first week of the series, we talked about Sabbath, self-care, and renewal. This week, we're talking about a life formed around the cross. The habits and the rhythms that we form in following Jesus will always be with these two. We're never called to die to self out of depletion, but it's always in the abundance that Christ is showing us that we are then pouring ourselves out for others. We are pouring ourselves out through the abundance of actually meeting with and knowing ourselves fully found in God. And what I think is probably the case for many of our lives, we aren't experiencing much of either. We aren't experiencing much Jesus-like care, self-care. We're also not experiencing much uh, Jesus-like sacrifice. 
But if we begin to follow Jesus and growing both of those habits more and more, I think we would experience what Jesus called the narrow gate that leads to life. This narrow gate that few find when we live with great care for ourselves, where we're meeting with God and our souls are being filled, and then we're pouring it out with radical generosity and love and compassion and service for others. That might be the narrow gate where real significance, abundance is for us in our life. The surprise of the cross is that sacrificing for others in Christ's name is actually good for your soul, for a deep-down satisfaction that can't be solved in many other ways. Jesus transformed the cross from an instrument of death to a place where life flourishes. So for us, we must learn to live with courage in following Jesus in that same way. A friend of mine, I was, I was talking to a group of friends about this sermon, and I found out a friend of mine uh, a couple years back, made crosses for a group of people that were going on to a, a retreat. And I asked how, how they made, and I loved just the visual of this. Uh, it began with some pecan wood uh, that he found. And he, um, he chose this wood carefully, I'm sure. And then what he did was he very carefully, very, very carefully made one cross. And he called this the master cross. And this cross was made very, very meticulously, very, very carefully, so that the rest of the wood, the rest of the crosses would be formed by this. He would fixate the uncut piece of wood to the master cross and would follow the outline of the cross to carefully cut the rest of the other crosses. It wasn't done just by happenstance, but it was actually formed and modeled from the original, just like it would be with Jesus and us that we are fixed to Christ and we're modeled and we're, uh, and we're formed around Jesus' cross. And what I also love about it is that each, for each of these crosses, there were imperfections, cracks and grooves that were unique to each of them. And he got turquoise and, and filled those cracks and grooves so that although we are all formed by the same cross, you are specifically and beautifully you. You're unique to your own self. And there's beauty in that. There's goodness in that. This, for me, is the image of the cruciform life, that Jesus, our master, he came to this world not only to save us, but to show us how to live a life formed by the cross, to, to show you the unique beauty that's found in your uniqueness, to show you that joy in life comes from the cross, this instrument that God used to save the world. Okay, so let's actually talk about how we can practice this. Again, we're people of the way, so how do we actually practice the, the, uh, the cruciform life. One good concept, concept that might be helpful for us is you can consider the cross is, you consider there's two aspects of it. There's two beams. There's the one uh, that is vertical. This is a symbol of our relationship with God. So the cruciform life is a life of full devotion and love to God, just like Jesus showed. He lived by very words that came from his father. He was devoted to his father. And so the cruciform life is one of full devotion to God. Yet there's the horizontal beam, which is a reminder of a life of service and love for others, our neighbors in this world. This is the, the, the mirror of the image of what Jesus, how he responded to the greatest commandment, to love God and love the neighbor. This is a picture of how we could see the cruciform life. So there are many different ways to live into this. Many different ways for us to live into loving God and loving the neighbor. 
in a way that's been modeled after Jesus. But I just want to offer three specific ways to practice the cruciform life this week. Again, this is an experiment we're going through Lent. Each week we're trying out different experiments. So for this week, I want to offer three specific ways. First is to practice denial. A life where your desires are in the driver's seat won't lead you to denial. <laughs> Those two things won't happen side by side. So a life of practicing denial does not mean denying your needs, but it's being open-handed to denying your wants, especially for the sake of others. And the season of Lent really is the tradition of practicing denying and fasting. Fasting is a means of telling your wants. Many of them are morally neutral to say, no, you're not in the driver's seat right now. It's saying no so that you can redirect your appetites, your desires actually to God. For instance, I did a very stupid thing this year. I have given up coffee for Lent. It's not smart. I regret it. I'm angry about it most days. Now, I didn't give it up because it's wrong, it's morally bad or anything like that. I just knew I'd drink a lot of it, a bit of a coffee snob. So maybe I judged a lot of people for, you know, folders or those little K-cups. Mm, mm-mm, Lord have mercy. But I, I drink a lot of it. And I spend a lot of money on it. And I also notice that it really drives a lot of my day. What do I think of when the first thing I wake up? When is that first cup of coffee going to happen? Or like when I get feel sluggish, I'm like, okay, time for a coffee. So now, like as I'm going through Lent, begrudgingly, I, um, I'm turning that desire, that appetite to God. The first thing I do when I wake up is, God, I actually need to meet with you. I need to find time. When, when can I get alone with you? When I'm feeling depleted, when I, when, I, when I need a recharge to actually say, God, I need, I need some strength now from you. It's just a way of reorienting my desires, taking my desires and turning it back towards God. I've also started drinking a lot of Red Bull. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. But what happens when we practice self-denial in the small areas is we are exercising these muscles where we can, might be prepared to practice denial in the larger areas as well. So that's one way to practice the cruciform life is that of denial. Jesus denied himself, right? He denied himself to pick up his cross and followed God. So the second way we can do this is through service of others. We can serve other people. Jesus did not come to be served but to serve. And the cross for us is a symbol from Jesus' life of how Jesus served others. If we are going to be formed by the master the master cross, the master of Jesus, then our lives should have the, uh, the formation of Christ-like service of others. This is the way it's always been for God's people. I love reading Eugene Peterson's letter, to the, uh, his, his uh, translation of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. This is Philippians 2, 1 through 4. If you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, <laughs> then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't you love that phrase? Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. This is the call for Christ's people. This is how we're formed and 
after the master Jesus. You won't be able to serve others as Christ would have you do if, if we are driven out of our self-centered desires. To be formed by Jesus means to put yourself aside long enough to help others get ahead. We are called to look for opportunities to serve others. Jesus was masterful at seeing those opportunities, and we should grow in that way too. And the last way I would encourage us to consider practicing the cruciform life is to love the enemy. Isn't this great? Isn't this an awesome way to end the sermon? We see in Jesus' life, he had this unbelievable ability to love people well, but what was shocking and disturbing to the people around him was how he loved the enemy. He saw the lines drawn around certain groups and certain peoples and paid no attention to it. If he did pay any attention, it was like, I'm going to break through that barrier, through that line, through that distinction between us and them. That's what Jesus did over and over again in a time where people were entrenched against one another. I'm just grateful we live in a day and age where there aren't opposition insides. Like people aren't entrenched against each other. I read recently uh, Arthur Brooks, he writes in the New York Times, he details how our culture today is more polarized than at the time of the Civil War. That's That's his opinion. And the reason why, it's his opinion, is that according to Brooks, the main problem is not our disagreements or our differences. We are fueled by hatred and disdain for the other. That's why this is a worse time in his point of view. I believe to be a follower of Jesus, if we're called to be salt and light in a particular day and age for us, what might it be if Christians were known, people of the way were known to be people who loved the enemy? The emotional enemy, the relational enemy, the enemy across whatever aisle you're entrenched. Jesus saw that word enemy was like, that's the person I'm called to love. Whatever name or people group were put in that category, Jesus intentionally went after them. Who is the enemy in your life? Your own emotional enemy right now. Your own relational enemy. Or what is the enemy the culture puts upon the church today. Who are those people who don't belong, not not included, shunned, pushed out, the furthest from the church? Might the way of Jesus be for us to be seen as people who are loving the enemy? In particular, the Bible calls us, when it comes to loving the enemy, the Bible calls us to bless, to pray for, do good to, Be merciful toward, lend to your enemy. It gets better. Without expecting anything back. This is Matthew 5, Luke 6. Later on, Paul makes it even better. Adding to Jesus' standard, he teaches that the church in Rome must learn to bless and not curse those who are actually persecuting you. And to never repay, repay evil for evil, we are called to overcome evil with good by feeding the enemy when they're hungry and offering them something to drink when they are thirsty. That's in Romans 12. Are you ready to love the enemy like that? Those who are persecuting, those who are against you? Actually take care of them? I mean, what Paul might be saying, if you have an enemy today, take him P. Terry's. Take him Juice Land. You know, like if they're hungry, if they're thirsty, care for them. Don't expect anything in return. 
There's no tit, and t- tit for tat in, in Christ's kingdom. It is an ongoing pouring out of love. Do you want to practice the cruciform life? That must mean we have to learn to love the enemy. And what happens if we start following the cruciform life? There will be an outcome. We don't practice the cruciform life because we just actually dislike ourselves, or we don't do it out of religious duty, or we don't do it to get into heaven. We do this as an expression of gratitude and expression of faith to Jesus. We do so, and the most incredible outcome takes place as we take up our own cross and learn to follow the cross of Jesus, slowly but surely, we will be transformed into Jesus's image. The life of Jesus will start taking over in our life. We might not see it at first, but slowly we will actually change. And that chronic disappointment that tastes in your mouth will be replaced with abiding joy that's rooted in selfless living. When we grow up and mature as God's people, we will experience what Paul put in words in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. When I've actually had the cruciform life, when I've actually learned to take up my cross, I'm experiencing the life of Jesus, the life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God who has loved me and has given himself for me. It's all in response to who Jesus is, what Jesus has done. So it's first experienced by delighting in the wondrous cross, the marvelous and and disturbing cross of Jesus, where we have been reminded again and again that you were loved, you were loved, and Jesus gave himself for you. If we judge the depth of affection and devotion by the sacrifice of someone else, we have this unlimited, eternal example of the love of Jesus upon the cross. So we soak that in. We remember how upon the cross, the all-holy Jesus stooped so low to become our sin, to take on the curse so that we could experience life, true life with God, unending, ceaseless intimacy with Jesus. So as we walk together um, through the season of Lent towards Easter, we will find his cross along the way. And along the way, Jesus wants for us to discover our cross too, the cross that leads us to true life. 